Brought to you by BedroomBattlefields.com, this is the Tabletop Miniature Hobby Podcast. On this episode of the Tabletop Miniature Hobby Podcast is someone who I'm sure needs no introduction to you as a listener to this podcast. When I was growing up in the mid-90s, reading my White Dwarf magazines, it felt like Gav Thorpe's face was on pretty much every second page of the magazine. And it's brilliant that he's still doing a lot of great work in the hobby to this very day. So I was really excited to get him on the show, I was excited he agreed to it. And there's a reason I'm doing this sort of Q&A format. I'm going to talk about that at the end of the podcast. I don't want to hold us up for any longer. So let's first and foremost dive into this conversation with Gav Thorpe. I started off by asking him a question about why he thinks this hobby actually still exists. I think this hobby still exists because it's not just one hobby for a start. There's lots of aspects to it, so... Um, there's the reading and the, you know, whether that's like history or novels or, or for, you know, like fictional backgrounds, there's the craft side of it, the social side of it, the actual gaming side. So it's got lots of appeal um, in different ways. So, uh, but I think the main thing is it is it mostly revolves around a very tactile physical experience um, that you can do either with other people or quite a bit of the time actually on your own. <laughs> um, I think you know, a lot of hobbies are actually for uh, for people to enjoy by themselves in many ways, whether it's collecting things or or making things and stuff. Is to you know to fill your time. Um, and there's you know gaming has got that in spades really. Uh, there's you know, for for most of us amount of time spent between playing actual games and either reading about stuff or prepping for games or buying things painting things you know all of that kind of stuff makes up the far more bulk of the hobby even though we call it gaming for the most part actually um that's that's probably you know about 10 percent of it for most people if if they're lucky um you know and some people obviously get to do that a lot more they're, they go they go to events every weekend or have a regular club and things and i think the, the things that it appeals to, because again, it's a very broad church, not just within the hobby, but within, you know, sort of from uh, historical through to fantasy and science fiction and pulp miniatures and all kinds of stuff. Again, there's lots of things for different tastes as well these days. So whatever your preferred, I suppose genre is not quite the word, but, you know, whatever you're interested in, actually there's there's quite a route in, if you're of a mind to, be a, you know like collecting toy soldiers or playing games and there's a route into it whether you're into your military history or if you're just into Lord of the Rings or uh, you know you just like the look of a space marine so you know it's uh, it's actually quite accessible certainly over the last 30 years it's become a lot more accessible as well I think that's one of the things is it was um, it was a, it was very niche so like when I was you know getting a young teenager getting into it it was definitely collecting toy soldiers and things was kind of almost on the level of still like stamp collecting, coin collecting, that kind of hobby, whereas actually as culture has got more games and genre orientated and more mainstream, um, it's one of those hobbies that's been able to expand with it, I think, because it plugs into a lot of that. uh, Like I say, it's one of those things that sort of can exploit 
you know, uh, the, the the kind of like the surge in interest in sci-fi and fantasy and, and all that kind of stuff, whereas other more traditional hobbies perhaps don't do that, you know, as much as they try to, you know, say, oh, cool, here's some cool 140,000 stamps for your collection, you know, or, or whatever it might be. It's, you know, that that's uh, there's only so much you can do, whereas actually gaming continues to expand, I think, and change, and that's what, you know, and, and adapt. So it's always kept it... Uh, it's always felt relevant. It's always been, you know, once you're into it as well, um, it's one of those things that people seem to come back to. There's, there seems to be a fairly common journey of sort of maybe discovering gaming in your teens, maybe falling out for it for a few years uh, in your later teens, early 20s, then maybe rediscovering it either, you know, when you finish university or when you have your own kids or stuff like that, and it's still there for you. Um, and, then, and you find out that although everything's changed, everything's still the same as well. You know, those basics of like... Um, buying miniatures, painting miniatures, playing games haven't changed really um, and there's a lot more in common across all of those things than there are differences even though it looks potentially at times that there's you know so many different things the, the basic drivers of collecting painting, playing uh, are still there, um, whether you're you know you want to collect a Roman Legion in 6mm or a, you know the latest Space Marine releases um, th- those drivers are still the same thing of recreating those stories, recreating those battles for yourself. So yeah, it's it's always feels relevant, I suppose. It's one of those things that, as a hobby, and that's why it's managed to kind of keep going. Yeah, I mean, from just going slightly off script for a second, from the sidelines, I suppose when video games started to take off, those on the sidelines might have looked at what we were doing and thought, well, there'll be no need for that soon because this could be recreated digitally. But that's ignoring all the other things that you've talked about, the collecting, the painting, the, the tactile stuff. It was just looking at it from a purely let's have a game of some point of view. So that's, I suppose that's a big reason why video games haven't killed this hobby. No, they haven't. And video games actually have fed it in many ways. And again, particularly because, uh, you know, because we spend so much more time with video games, actually having a physical hobby has its own appeal of being able to switch off the screen and do something that's just right in front of us. But also, I mean, uh, you know, again, with a sample size of one, my son, but, you know, it's like lots of things that we kind of, I discovered through gaming, particularly like lots of elements of science fiction and fantasy and things like that, are now just kind of common parlance. You know, he's, they're in they're in kids' cartoons, they're in, uh, you know, just like in video games. So like the idea of space warriors, you know, fighting, you know, weird aliens and uh, or knights and Romans and all this other kind of other stuff has kind of shifted out of books and into videos and, and video games and things anyway. Uh, and particularly when you look at uh, lots of like, you know, uh, as gaming itself has expanded into very casual gaming, you know, through through video games, through tablets and phones and stuff like that. So as that's expanded, the niche for miniatures gaming and tabletop gaming has just kind of expanded with it, within that overall gaming umbrella. So more people, even though they don't necessarily identify as gamers, will have a game on their phone. They will have, you know, uh, they, they will, they'll at least be aware of the hobby in a way that they just weren't 20 years ago, 30 years ago. So as the net broadens, it catches more fish. <laughs> That's just the, the nature of it. So, and people are more prepped for the ideas behind gaming and, uh, and, and, you know, and even just simple things like, uh, you know, video games have also borrowed stuff from the hobby in terms of customization of your characters and, 
and uh, you know the representations of yourself in those games in terms of skins and uh, and being able to so again picking kids games like Minecraft and Roblox the idea that you can uh, create an avatar of yourself that actually you have the ability to have control over what things look like which again the the, the thing about tabletop games more than any other game is they're interactive that you can choose what you do with them now you can sort of go in and people do mods for video games and stuff like that but actually obviously that's a whole expertise in itself uh, and although there are certain toolkits and things and some games now are you know are designed around modding and things like that they're not necessarily the actual hobby that's taking it a step further whereas actually you get to choose what color your space marines are you get to choose what you collect you get you have an interaction with it you can make up stories about those characters and define find them in a way that you just can't with a video game so there's still a different experience there an element of control that no amount of technology really allows you to do and the video games are trying to emulate by in certain ways by giving you back some of that control over what you do with their games it's not just delivered to you you're actually having an interaction with it and that's what a hobby is that's one of the things that defines a hobby rather than just like a uh, I suppose uh, Rick Priestley had quite an interesting uh, take on this back in the day, which was like the difference between a hobby and a pastime, which was a hobby which actually required dedication, time, and money to, to do. That you actually get out of it what you put in. So, you know, uh, uh, and so again, that's sort of, sort of one of those differences between just like, you know, playing a, a match three game on your phone in a casual style just to fill some time or going out uh, and, you know, paying 40 quid for an Xbox game and playing it for 60 hours. So, you know, there's a there's a difference there in terms of your relationship to it and what you put into it. So, yeah, uh, uh, and I think that is one of those things is, uh, you know, it continues to, those things haven't changed, those needs that we have or for, for certain people, <laughs> uh, you know, what we used to call the hobby gene, the Games Workshop, um, who have that desire to collect, to paint, to do whatever of those many things it offers. It's the same as it was, yeah, like 35 years ago when I was, uh, you know, just starting out playing. What's your favourite book of all time? Um, I'm really bad at favourites. I don't do favourites very well because they just change all the time. And it depends what mood I'm in and and things like that. So I was thinking about this a little bit. And uh, I would say, I wouldn't say my, so favourites is slightly the wrong word, but there's, 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 there's a couple of books that I, whenever I look at them, I've still got them. They give me a very visceral reaction. And they are about when I got into the hobby, when I got into sort of like things. One of them is the Rogue Trader 140,000 rule book. Like I can literally open those pages and it's a time machine for me. And I just, I look at those pictures and things and I can remember what it, how exciting and how amazing this thing seemed to me when I was uh, 14, when it came out. Um, so you know that there's that, and, and there's I have a, a quite a similar experience to my uh, my basic and expert edition Dungeons and Dragons sets because again they were they were a little bit I was a little bit younger, I was born ten, eleven, I think, when we got those. But again, there's just seeing these pictures and thinking that I can this is something I can participate in. Going back to what I was just you know saying about the hobby and participation. So yeah, so I suppose. And and that's that's nice, you know. It's like that that connection with those books is still nice, um, which I don't get from many other media, really. You know, there's certain things, you know. Like, um, again, I suppose it's also partly because I've still got those actual original books. It's not so like my my version of Lord of the Rings, for instance, isn't the one that I read when I was growing up. It's you know because that was my dad's copy. Uh, you know, my versions of various other favourite books. 
just don't quite give me, you know, it's like I enjoy them, I might go back and reread them and things, but they, there isn't that, you know, there isn't that kind of attachment to my life, I suppose, in the same way as those books have. And I've, and I've come to define so much of my life later as well. So, yeah, I, I'd put the, I'd put those down as my uh, f- favourite books in that sense, yeah. Who or what is your biggest inspiration in what you do? I, I find the most inspiring thing is, is other people it's the fans really and other hobbyists and things actually I find what they do you know and seeing other people kind of collecting and painting and gaming and 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 I remember that you know it's easy to kind of get detached from the end result of a thing so like you're writing a book or designing a game and you're sat there and 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 you're in a little bit of a bubble generally and creating this thing and and that becomes the end of it and forgetting there's a reader out there or there's a hobbyist out there that is going to interact with us at some point so i find going to events like whether that's like gaming events or sort of um, writing events conventions really inspirational i'm terrible for you know because i split between games design and, and sort of like fiction writing so i i i swing madly between the two in terms of depending on who I've last been talking to or what I've last been reading. So I'll, you know, I'll be reading like Tabletop Games magazine and it's like, oh yeah, cool. And I really want to, you know, I've really got some cool ideas for board games and then I'll go to Fantasy Con or something like that and talking to other novelists and stuff. So I really, really need to work on some of my own fiction. And then I'll go to like a Games Workshop event and just go, oh yeah, yeah, cool. I remember how much I love Warhammer. You know, so, and and I, I feed off that, I suppose. It's not necessarily other people's... Enthusiasm, but there's a slightly vampiric quality to it because I, because I like so many things. I find it very, you know, it's like I'm, I'm drawn in many different directions about what things I enjoy creating and interacting with. But actually, um, seeing other people interacting and, and enjoying those things kind of like acts as a bit of a lodestone for me and helps me focus my thoughts and remind me of why I do some of these things. So you know, whether that's talking to people about books or the hobby or a particular set of rules, even you know. Um, it's like, oh yeah, that's really cool. Actually, yes, I remember now. That's why I do this. Um, and the other thing, and I think an activity for me, you know, I think uh, I, I find I, I get into either like a, a bit of a vicious circle or like a virtuous spiral, depending on how much I'm actually gaming and seeing people. So, like, if I'm playing a game and I'm painting the models to play the game, and it, and it kind of they add to each other because I want to play a bit more because I've painted the models and stuff. Whereas actually, if I go through a slightly furlough period of stuff, when I'm not actually getting out, chatting, to, uh, you know, and actually gaming and things, I don't necessarily just paint things for in abstract you know for later and stuff i'm not very good at that um so or or you know uh, again it's one of those sort of um uh, become a bit of a trope of the hobby really but actually these sort of like the paint and chat sessions of you know just getting a couple of friends on a video chat and so you know and talking and you might be talking about anything else but actually talk, chatting to other people while you're painting making it a social thing again that's that's what gets me going i don't um I like creating words and things. I can sit down and do that, but actually I tend to not do much of the hobby side of the painting or collecting side necessarily, unless I've got other people around um, or, or have recent experience of being around people that kind of spur me on and remind me of like, oh yeah, cool, that's why. Yes, you do enjoy doing this, remember? It's not a chore. It's actually something I quite enjoy. And then I get back into it again. So yeah, the inspiration actually is generally the community, I think. I, I get it more from outside than, than inside. The inside stuff is more wanting to write rules or wanting to write stories and things, whereas actually the, the participating in the hobby bit comes from the outside, yeah. 
What's your best value budget hobby purchase of less than £20? Uh, it's a tricky one. I, but I have a variety of... I wouldn't necessarily pick one, but I think just getting some nice basing materials can make a real difference to a miniature. You know, you can have a fair, you know, you could do a nice, fairly straightforward paint job, but actually just having a nice little bush or some rocks or having just a, a nice basing scheme on an army can really bring it together and make it. So uh, if, I was, if I had 20 quid to spend, I, I spend as much time working out what my basing scheme is for miniatures as I do the colour scheme for the models themselves and things like that and, and, and making little flock mixes and stuff, you know, of, like, of particular, like, you know, different kind of mixes of flock and grains and stuff like that. Um, that for a particular uh, war band or army and things. So, um, yeah, I think you can, uh, you know, twenty pounds of little, uh, you know, uh, maybe a bag of flock and some some uh, coloured sand or, or whatever um, could make a, a huge difference. Particularly because I remember the back in the day of everything was like sand, goblin green bases when they all just looked slightly toy like, you know, the the, the red period and stuff. So. Uh, yeah, that, the, my best hobby purchase is probably a, a, a sort of like yeah, some little tufts of bushes that I've got, and uh, some nice static grass. <laughs> so you don't you don't do the, the go- sort of golf course aesthetic of the mid nineties then? No, no, the not anymore. No, <laughs> I think Necromunda broke me. That was a thing, you know. It was, but when we had to do green bases for Necromunda, it was just like. No, okay. And, uh, and when when they're in Space Hulk as well, like yes. they're in the Space Hulk and they're on the golf course, <laughs> it's amazing. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Well, that, yeah, I mean, that's one of the things we managed to sort of managed to break out of slightly. I think it was like third edition 40K, really, where we said, you know, you can put stuff on like, you know, actually, no, it's probably more about Epic, I think. And, and again, it was a weird that we didn't do it with Necromunda, but actually, I think I remember when there was Imperial Fists army for the studio uh that was like and it was on nice kind of sandy bases we actually did a sand a desert board for the first time i think in the studio and then suddenly it was like the the griff of goblin green was prized off the bases and probably sales tanked of goblin green then that's why they discontinued it but you know whereas you know so yeah yeah i think it is i mean my painting's all right but actually just the difference between having a, a painted miniature where I've not done the base yet and then putting the basing on, you know, do the rear and paint the base and suddenly it's a finished miniature and it looks like a finished miniature, you know. Uh, whereas actually until then, it's just like a thing with loads of blobs of paint on it. And it's uh, amazing the difference it can make of just bringing everything together. So uh, I do obsess about it slightly. If you could live in any historical period, where, when and why? To be fair, I'd, you know, uh, I would... I would probably just kind of go for Victorian, I think, because I could get, or actually no, sorry, I'd probably go Edwardian, I think a bit later, just kind of, I turn the century Edwardian, it's like not terrible life chances, but but also actually I could get away with, um, it's like the birth of Pulp Fiction and magazine, like, you know, the, the into the Victorian Edwardian period is like, I could get away with just like writing Pulp Fiction um, and Penny Dreadfuls and things like that. Uh, so I, it wouldn't be too different from what I do now. Um, and, and also, actually, I think, you know, I'd look okay in a top hat and tails. I think I'd, I'd cut an okay figure. Um, but I wouldn't, you know, we're past duelling. Nobody's going to challenge me to a duel or anything. So I think, uh, 
So that's said, you know, and also trains. I can, you know, you can get this transportation. You can go to places. It's slightly interesting. Uh, yeah, um, you know, we'll have to try and get over the whole kind of empire thing. But you know, that's, that's you know, once you go back far enough, there's going to be something horrible happening to somebody somewhere already. So, uh, yeah, yeah, probably I'd be okay as an Edwardian gentleman. Do you think there are any underutilized settings or periods in tabletop gaming? I think there's getting fewer. One of the, I think about one of the interesting periods, and I'm not an expert on it in any sense, but it's something I'm sort of aware of actually, which would be quite, well, I think, could be quite interesting, is uh, sort of like the the Cold War, but rather because Cold War stuff tends to focus a bit on like, well, what if the Cold War went hot and the, the Russians rolled into Germany and you know, sort of like Team Yankee, all that kind of stuff. Whereas actually, I think the fighting those fighting all the little proxy wars either in like in South America or across Asia or those kinds of things like um, actually could be quite interesting some small guerrilla groups and because I think uh, again there's there's very limit uh, a lot of more games these days are very much for people of not quite so much space and not quite so much time that's why skirmish gaming is kind of very useful so it's kind of like I suppose um, thinking about sort of like yeah small 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 action stuff which never really hit the headlines and nobody really thinks of as uh, a war in many ways but actually there was a lot of it sort of like going on that people didn't necessarily realize around the Balkans and the you know so there's kind of like I think you can also mix it with a little you know kind of interesting narratives of kind of like a little bit of a uh, a spy game kind of thing going on as well so but yeah so I'm not exactly sure but it's it's one of those um like I say, I wouldn't think of uh, immediately of, of anyone who's kind of really doing that at the moment. And uh, uh, I've I found, I've done a bit of reading on it, like I say, just uh, over the years um, of like, like revolutionaries and, and things like that. So um, you could, I could see how you, know, you could you could link that into sort of like some cool campaign systems and things like that. Um, and interesting again, characterful miniatures, I suppose, of of not just like uh, guys in uniforms and stuff, but actually you know sort of like paramilitaries and and, and things like that. So it could be quite interesting. Um, but yeah, I mean everything else is kind of covered. You know, it's like you look somewhere, you know, even that back, even down to like cavemen wars and things like that. It's like pretty much somebody's got a miniatures range of wolf set there. You know, fantasies. You know, I mean, there's obviously licenses. There's various you know things I'm into that would be cool. I mean, one of the great things is doing at the moment is working with Warlord on their 2000 AD license games. So that's always been that's been cool. Bringing like Strontium Dog and Slain and things to life. Um, so, you know, there's various other things that I'm into that you go, cool, all right, yeah, you know, it'd be nice to turn that, you could turn that maybe into a, a small skirmish tabletop game or something like that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I th- again, it'd be, I think, uh, I, I focus quite a bit on small scale, very quite story driven gaming a lot of the time, especially for my own stuff anyway. What might people be surprised to hear that you're not very good at? I'm terrible at collecting armies and finishing stuff. I'm such a butterfly gamer. And so I suppose people would be surprised that I haven't actually played Warhammer in like 10 years. I've played Age of Sigma, actually. That's not true. I've played Age of Sigma. Uh, I didn't play Warhammer for quite a long time and came back to Age of Sigma. But yeah, I've uh, I've not... Actually, yeah. Warhammer, Age of Sigma, I suppose, yeah, queers out a little bit. But I've not, I've not collected and painted a 40k army for 
pretty much since I left Games Workshop 16 years ago. There you go. So I've played, I've played various other smaller games and stuff, but I'm a terrible 40k player, I suppose you would say, because um, I've not not really played uh, at all, except once or twice with my ancient Eldar army, um, which the first models were from before second edition. <laughs> um, so I, I, I'm, uh, yeah. Despite everything I write about it and, and interact with it and stuff, I don't actually, I'm not really much of a 40k hobbyist anymore in terms of the battle game, anyway. Uh, but that might change. You know, I always keep looking at it and I, I, I briefly was very interested in 8th edition when it came out and I bought that and I was going to do it with my son and I started putting some together and then got distracted and did some other stuff <laughs> and then, you know, and then the time had kind of gone because, again, it was all very exciting and enthusiastic and then, yeah. I say, I didn't quite ride the wave all the way into actually finishing that army. So I've got like about five Primaris put together and stuck some Death Guard together for him, and then that was it. So, um, whereas I'm much better at finishing some other stuff. Funnily enough, um, I think I think it might be just because I do deal with it so much in my day job, writing and things that maybe actually I want to change <laughs> when I'm doing my toy soldiers. That might be part of it. What have you recently changed your mind about? I'm always changing my mind, I suppose, in some ways, in terms of of. I think this is kind of linked to one of the other questions as well, really. But I would say um, for for a long time, um, and and working against workshop for for years, and amongst sort of like incredible painters and artists and things. So it was always, it was always what was presented was the most aspirational version of what was you know what's turned the games workshop hobby. So you know beautifully painted miniatures over amazingly modelled battlefields. And and that was always in my head as the goal it was to try and recreate that for myself. Um, but of course, not being a professional heavy metal painter, not being a professional design studio, scenery maker, whatever, it's actually, um, you know, it, it took a while, I think, for me to refocus and, and onto what I think I want to do and achieve and play and, and things like that for my own enjoyment. Uh, and to a level that I feel is acceptable, but actually uh, not insane. So I, I guess, that, yeah, it's 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 perfect. <laughs> I again, it sort of like was was fairly hammered into me, and, and again, as aspirational of like you know, it's like don't play with unpainted models. You don't play with sort of like proxies and things like that. Uh, and particularly because I, I am very big on the aesthetic of, game, of of miniatures gaming that's the point of using miniatures is they look great you know uh, and if you've got like a tin can pretending to be a dreadnought or something like that then it takes away from that aesthetic you know I've never been necessarily like a uh, just purely focused on the game aspect of the games um, so that, I still have an element of that but actually particularly because I'm so bad at finishing stuff and then coming to those realisations of like, no, you know what? It's okay to put some grey plastic on the table now and again. If you want to try something out and use something as something else, that's fine. So I've, I've become less hardcore, I suppose, in terms of like what the perfect game is and what people should aspire to and do, um, which means that I actually get to do play a few more games and a few different things because I don't have to have like a completely finished painted force to do this thing or I don't you know I don't because uh, it was it was preventing me actually enjoying stuff because uh, I wouldn't play until like say I'd finished painting 20 models for that game or whatever which meant I didn't get around to playing it and people moved on to something else or I'd moved on to something else um, so yeah yeah remembering the game part of gaming as well as the aesthetic side of it has, has been a bit of a journey for me when was the last time something in the hobby surprised you 
not very often, I suppose, but actually people's models, people's enthusiasm continually surprises me. You know, I just look at stuff and go, oh, that's really cool. Um, I suppose surprised, surprised. The last thing I think for me was um, when I uh, was a, a little while back now, but I was looking, I, I deliberately was looking outside like the, sort of like the big games for other stuff. Uh, and, and particularly I was looking for or fantasy and science fiction that wasn't kind of like the standard tropes and, and things that you see in lots of miniatures games and things like that. And I was very, I was pleasantly surprised by just actually how much other stuff's out there once you start looking smaller companies, but also things that are genuinely quite original and different and aren't just like riffs on space troopers or fighting aliens or knights and medieval kind of fantasy and things like that. And, I, again, I suppose it's part of, again part of that hobby journey, really, of moving away from what's right in front of you and actually delving into some of the slightly more obscure parts of the hobby and trying to find. For me, again, it's trying. You know, we're all trying, we're all trying to recreate slightly the feeling we have when we we started out. We're all harkening back to those days of discovery and things like that. I suppose of like when we first came into the hobby and everything was very new and shiny, exciting. And so, and for me, part of that was always like going into like a hobby store and nosing around the, the like the the bargain blister box, you know, and finding what was there because, you know, so, whereas these days, of course, everything is very marketed and, and generally in your face from lots and lots of different companies and things. So uh, you don't necessarily have to go looking for stuff. So um, I, I, I deliberately try to surprise myself sometimes by looking in the unexpected places, going to war game shows and looking through the bring and buy or the, you know, or um, sort of like uh, resellers and stuff to try and find something that's slightly old and obscure or whatever that I wouldn't have expected to find. Tell me something that's true that almost nobody agrees with you on. I, I still maintain it is possible to release and support a list of a set of commercially successful war games rules that don't use army lists. <laughs> um, and of of any kind. Um, whereas actually, you know, almost anyone else I talk to, whether publishing or game signing or whatever, there are obviously some, there are sets of rules that don't use army lists and things like that. But actually, um, uh, I have some ideas for a particular type of game system, which is essentially self-regulated. Now, I can't get to work, unfortunately, but I will get to work one day, which doesn't use army lists, doesn't use... You know, uh, even though we were talking about open combat earlier, again, that doesn't use army lists as such. But what became evident with that and chatting to the designer Carl with that is that, again, people still wanted more guidance. They did want army lists. They wanted guidance. Although it's a completely free form, create your own uh, set of rules, it, the, the lack of structure just through people you know so there's the people that get it and they, they really go for it but actually there's a huge amount of people that just want that structure they want to be told how to collect how to how to structure things into their game and things which is understandable but I think um, but I've got yeah I don't know if it's a third way and uh, that I've been working on which is sort of uh, an all encompassing scenario for selection games victory condition system that I will get to work, but haven't yet. <laughs> um, so, and and maybe uh, so, but uh, you know, uh, that the convention of army lists in war games is so entrenched now, um, particularly for battle games, 
Um, not quite so much, but yeah, still versions of Armulus, even for small skirmish games and things. Everything has points values, everything has to have balance. Um, and I, I maintain that while that's true, I think it is possible to make a, like I say, the important bit is the commercially successful part, because there's lots of rule sets out there which don't necessarily uh, treat collections and forces in the same way, but they're probably quite small. I would say in scope and appeal compared to the, the you know the big games. So I will I will prove that truth one day um, when I when I finally get these rules finished at some point and published, and then they'll just flop and nobody and everyone will go. But where's the army list? And then I'll be proved wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not. Maybe not. But uh, but I've not been proved wrong. I've only been argued wrong so far. <laughs> yeah. Know, yeah. Until I, until it's done. Until I've proved you know. It's it's the theory, it's the uh, yeah it's the test of the theory. The theory is that you need army lists to sell miniatures. Particularly, I will prove them wrong. Um, but but yeah, maybe I won't. We'll see. Our question of the month for May 2024 is: What rules have you created or adapted to improve your favourite gaming system? This might be a homebrew rule or something you've ported over from another game. The point is, you tried it, it worked well, and you kept on using it. Head on over to bedroombattlefields.com forward slash voicemail to submit your answer. That's bedroombattlefields.com forward slash voicemail. And now, back to the show. Tell me something you once believed about the hobby that turned out not to be true. So before I joined Games Workshop, so I'd finished school, I was 18... I wasn't quite sure what to do. I wasn't going to college to become an artist anymore. That was going to turn out. So I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do. And I, and I had, a, I, as, as only a naive, enthusiastic 18-year-old could ever conceive, I had the idea that I was going to open a war game shop. Um, and I was looking through, uh, I can't remember what war games meant, like Winchester Wargaming or War Games Illustrated or something like that, and looking at all the adverts for the manufacturers in the back. And it was all very exciting. Because like I said, I'm into everything. It's like I love Romans, Napoleonics, Vikings, whatever. So uh, I find everything all very exciting. So I had this idea of this games workshop professional style store, but that with multiple stockists. And I said, no, it's, it's obvious it's going to work. That'd, that'd be amazing. And I'll just do that. And I'll just, you know, People will flock to that, and it's like, no, that's not what that would uh, now. Just knowing what I know about how people collect and buy and all the rest of it, it's just like, no, that store would be dead within months. Because <laughs> um, uh, I think, you know, it's so broad and so, you know, I think the closest to get to something that I was thinking of would be something like the um, Wargame Foundry sort of thing, um, but with multiple stockists, you know, sorry, multiple, right? Um, manufacturers and stuff like that it just would be impractical so i don't there is no such thing as a one-stop hobby shop um i don't think it's it's too broad it's too big um and, and as soon as you start unless you're going to go for something big like, unless you're someone like games workshop with your own stores or you go you know um or you stock some of their stuff or the big things you did not people aren't especially now obviously this was free internet as well these days it'd just be absolutely dead in the water with like people just if they want you know if they want miniatures they're just going to order them online they're not going to travel to the the cool little historical war game shop down in Stevenage or wherever um, <laughs> that I was going to set up so yeah I think I think that everyone's as enthusiastic about all the soldiers as I was when I was 18 is not true people tend to I, I, I realise how much 
you know, there, there are still quite a lot of people that like a lot of different games, but there people tend to be far more focused on one or two very particular games or periods than I used to imagine, because I always loved everything. Whereas actually, the number of people that are just 40k players or just Napoleonics players or just six mil players, you know what I mean? It's like it's far more than I ever realised when I started out. I didn't realise people were, were quite so streamlined as it were, I suppose. Um, again, that's changed slightly as things have broadened out. And, you know, again, particularly with the advent of lots more kind of smaller skirmish style games where you can kind of dip in and, you know, maybe collect 10, 20 models of, of a game system, play it for a little bit, put it to the side, try something out. Whereas actually, of course, again, this was back when you everything was battle games, really. Everything was about collecting large armies, obviously, you know, or whatever counters a large army back in the early 90s. Um, so, yeah, whereas I think there might be, there's certainly more butterfly gamers around these days of, of smaller games and things, but the traditional war games thing of like, you know, collecting the big armies and, and playing big battles, uh, you know, funny enough, takes a lot of effort and actually people don't do necessarily, most people don't necessarily uh, spread themselves thinly. They, they find one or two games that they like and just play those. So, yeah, that's, uh, that's what, that's, that was the main thing I suppose I've discovered over the last 30 years. Are there any common hobby myths and misconceptions that make you roll your eyes? A few. I mean, I suppose uh, it's, it's sort of like a slightly adjacent hobby myth, I suppose. But the idea that somehow the, uh, there's all, there's all this kind of there's always this misconception that at Games Workshop, in particular for what, for the one forty thousand setting, that somewhere there's a giant big book of everything that we just kind of look up stuff in and go, you know, like there's some kind of hidden Bible that we we don't let the public see, but it's all been worked out. And it's like, no, we're all just making up as we went along. You know, it's like, it's not, that thing doesn't exist. In fact, actually, it's, like, it's really hard trying to put it all together and back together now. So, you know, it was, it was far less organised than people thought, I suppose. That, but actually, I suppose, um, tying in a little bit to what I was saying earlier, I think... The, uh, and something that's become much more evident like, as social media and like Instagram and Facebook and things has expanded is that uh, that somehow you have to be good at your hobbies. That like, your hobbies should be fun. Um, it's not, you know, there's always, especially with gaming, obviously, there's a bit of a competitive element in the games themselves and things, but actually you're not in competition with anyone else doing that hobby. You know, I was thinking that like, if you collect coins, then you might be, I think there might be, you know, there's a slightly you know, uh, again, social media is one of the pillars of social media is essentially engineered jealousy. Like, oh, yeah, uh, they've got, you know, or they've got that particular coin or that particular stamp or the whatever, you know, I wish I had that in my collection. It's a certain thing, but actually, or the size of the collection. But actually, particularly on the craft side of things, uh, there was somebody, you know, fairly recently shared something which was, which was really good, which was just basically, you know, don't, you don't have to be good at, you know, if you if you enjoy doing watercolors, you just enjoy doing watercolors, and you shouldn't compare yourself to somebody who's a professional watercolor painter, or you know, people just like knitting, or people who like you know other hobbies and things. And that, so, therefore, actually, yeah, we shouldn't be comparing, we shouldn't equate our enjoyment of our hobby with the quality of the hobby. There isn't qualities that are like isn't a thing. You know, I'm not going to paint as well as lots of painters are. I'm certainly not going to. I'm not the tactician that many other people are. The size of my collection isn't necessarily as big as some other people. So I don't have to be in competition with those people. I don't have to compare myself to those people to enjoy it. And actually in doing so, we actually quite often we 
put ourselves off. We put pressure on ourselves to try and conform, to try and so, uh, and particularly because again the culture that we're in, this idea that we're supposed to, you know, it's, it's all well and good kind of getting better at a craft, practicing your painting, getting better, you know, learning new techniques. All of that's important, but actually none of that's more important than just having fun and enjoying what you're doing which again sort of comes back to my you know it's okay to use plastic and if if that's what you want to do and things are not not trying to attain a standard that's impossible and therefore no longer fun um uh, and and how we don't have to professionalize our hobbies you know it's it's uh, going back to when i was painting miniatures when i was 11 or 12 and not caring particularly that you know the fun of putting the paint on the miniatures was the fun of putting the paint on the miniatures and they quite clearly weren't as good as the ones that are in the magazines and things like that but it didn't matter to me then because i just enjoyed the process of it and we were, and as you get older and you start you know you start aspiring to do better and things like that you're you're in danger of losing some of that because actually you're never happy with what you've done you know we're always hoping that you go well okay uh, so it's, it's yeah again remembering it's a hobby it's supposed to be fun it's not supposed to be something that gives you stress uh you know it's like it doesn't matter what somebody else has put on facebook and how how big their arm is or what it, you know or how nicely painted it is compared to yours because yours is your hobby the, the the doing of it was what was the point of it not not the, it's not a competition with other hobbyists um uh, and so yeah uh, and i think yeah, that's quite important that people try and remember that because it's very easy to to get dragged into those kind of comparisons. And no, and again, not 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 deliberately by anybody else. And people should definitely share their miniatures and things. And uh, again, uh, there was uh, one uh, again, uh, sort of a commissioned painter who shared some stuff, uh, and they were saying how you know. It was weird because, of course, some people would reply to them and just go, oh, God, I might as well just break my brushes now because they could never... And it's like... And that made them feel bad for sharing stuff. And they're like, well, you know, because they felt like that's a negative comment, where, of course, it's meant as a compliment. But actually, it's not because you're telling you're telling people you're putting them off their hobby. It's like, well, they're not, they're not competing with... You know, the people that are good at these things aren't... Unless you're literally entering a painting competition or entering a tournament or something, they're not in competition with you. They're just enjoying the same hobby and they just happen to have more time or a, or a certain talent or aptitude for doing things differently. Um, and, you know, and you have to be happy with your own level. And I think one of the things I try to do, for example, on Twitter and stuff is like, you know, because quite often you share nice miniatures, you know, that's how social media works. But actually I try to go out of my way and share stuff that isn't necessarily the best, but it's definitely somebody's labor of love or their, do you know what I mean? It's like somebody's just clearly enjoyed doing this thing and it might be a bit of a ropey conversion, but it's cool. You know, it's just like, it's a cool idea. They're having fun with it. Um, it's one of the, again, going back to that, the Games Workshop thing, it was always the top tier aspirational stuff that was shown. And very rarely we managed to put, you know, because, you know, and I understand that sort of from the commercial point of view that you want to show your miniatures at their best, you know, and things like that. But actually, you know, showing people a bit of, you know, like easy train made out of a Pringles tube rather than beautifully modelled, you know, whatever. It's, you know, giving people some stepping stones, you know, actually showing people, showing real armies, you know, for people who painted it in three colour and just, like, flocked a base. That might not be the place for, like, a professional magazine like uh, White Dwarf necessarily, but certainly the community can do, you know, the community should celebrate the hobby 
as the hobby and not just the you know like the the, the most aspirational the highest achieving parts of the hobby i suppose um, and we should be better at that are there any particularly satisfying mechanics you've either created yourself or came across whilst playing someone else's game so so my favorite mechanic and is is blood bowl is when jervis created the blocking dice for blood bowl it's my favourite thing. It took a really complicated game with lots of sets of tables and looking things up and modifiers and stuff and turned it into a really simple roll one, two or three of these dice and then depending on how you roll, uh, something happens. And it was so streamlined and so simple and made the game so much more playable. Yeah, it was just genius. It's just, you know, and... Um, so that's that's been one of my favourite mechanics, I think, of anything. And because it was a physical thing as well, it was the idea of, well, actually, we can do stuff with dice. They don't have to just be D6s. They don't have to have equal weighting between the six results. And actually rolling multiple dice and picking one, um, not necessarily having to add them all together or all that kind of stuff, was just, you know, that it, it made the game. You know, that third edition Blood Bowl is just a, a beautiful piece of games engineering based around those very simple mechanics uh, and I loved I loved it when it came out it was like I loved playing it um, in terms of mechanics myself um, and it's one I've chatted to with people before I suppose when I did Inquisitor and people quite like so Inquisitor it's very narrative um, and what you do is you nominate what your character is going to do what you want them to do you rather than having like a set of action points to spend and then you just go through and do them you say oh well they want to run over here they're going to hide behind a barrel and then they're going to shoot at that sort of like cultist over there and then you roll some you roll a bunch of dice depending on their speed and each four plus actually allows you to have part of that action so what you're doing is you're never quite sure exactly how much of your intended actions you get to actually resolve so there's always a, a tension between trying to do stuff and playing it cautious you know um so oh and and people certainly have, have spoken to me and saying that again that's kind of quite core to the game and that's what one of the things that makes it quite fun is that uh, and, and it kind of it, again that played back into the blood bowl thing of the idea of the turnover the idea of the failure i think for me narrative comes from unpredictability sometimes is the things we remember most about games are things that we didn't expect to happen you know when your knights charge in and crush that goblin uh unit and, and run them down you go well that's what they were supposed to do yeah um when the goblins charge in and crush the knights and run them down that's a story yeah uh, and the same time you know when your dwarf general flees or you know the, the the thing goes bad or well you know particularly well that's what we remember and i think uh so that idea of you know when when you with Inquisitor, that unpredictability of not quite knowing what your character was going to do, um, and that slight step back from having total control over them. So it's like, well, I want them to do this, but they might trip up, they might just stumble, they might just get there but not fire, they might just be caught in the open halfway there. Um, adds to the the story of the game. So yeah, I'm, I'm quite pleased with that one as well. It's got very, it's very simple, but it's actually a very effective way of adding some unpredictability into uh, uh, the gameplay. Do you have any advice for those who want to follow your path? 
literally the path that I followed doesn't exist anymore because of changes at sort of Games Workshop and the way things you know happen now. So, um, so because you know I was lucky enough, I was got recruited by Games Workshop in the 1990s when they were expanding. They deliberately were getting more games designers in. I got very lucky. I got an interview and I started there, and I was there for 14 years during you know a period of massive growth and things like that. Um, but that's just not how their studio works now and, and things like that. Uh, and I also happened to be there when they set up a publishing company, Black Library, you know, so I could, I, I literally started writing fiction, you know, that way um, for for a guy who was like three desks down on the left sort of thing. Um, so that again, you know, oh yes, yeah, just uh, all you need to do is, you know, be working at a company that sets up a publishing imprint and lets you write for them, that's easy. Um, but the, but the, the piece of advice I always give to people who want to do anything hobby related if it's game design, painting, or, you know, whatever it is, is like, the, the reason I got the job, I think, and the reason I've done so well is it was what I was doing anyway. So when I was a teenager and I was into like gaming and, you know, reading and uh, and all that kind of stuff, uh, fantasy and science fiction and things, comics, but I was writing scenarios, I was creating characters, I was coming up with little campaign ideas, I was designing games with my friends, um, because I enjoyed doing them. I, at that, like I said, at that time, I, what I really wanted to do was I wanted to become an illustrator. Yeah, so I was looking at all the cool pictures in all of these books. Uh, and it's like, well, that's what I wanted to do. But it turned out I wasn't really good enough at art to do that. Um, but what, I, what apparently I was good at was actually coming up with characters, creating stories, writing games, you know. So that's what I was doing anyway. And so particularly writing, when people sort of like, you know, whether it's fiction or game rules, it's like, well, you should want to be doing it anyway. If you choose, like, it's a terrible career to choose, right? It's full of uncertainty. There's very few opportunities. It's like, you know, um, you're much better off, like, you know, studying accountancy or coding or, you know, something that people will definitely need in the future. As, as much as it's still expanding, you know, it's like there's more opportunities in games design uh, and kind of uh, writing and and creative jobs than there's ever been in the past. But it's still a very small number of people actually get to make a, a career out of it. Um, so what you need to do is just do it you know I, I turned up to my interview with a big pile of stuff that I'd written and sketches that I'd done of things I'd invented and I'd borrowed my mum's electric typewriter and typed stuff up so it was legible for rules for like I don't know orc, wagon, orc boss wagons in epic games and uh, and all kinds of other stuff that I'd invented um, so I was doing you know it wasn't like I decided to do this for a job it was something I enjoyed doing anyway and I think that's how you have to approach it it isn't it's not a vocation you know you're not being a vicar or a nurse or something but it's close you know it's like that creativity has to be in you you'd have to be wanting to do it even if nobody was paying you to do it I suppose is, is, is how I'd put it and then look for the opportunities and, and don't fixate on one particular thing again so many people say like oh how do you write for Black Library how do you work for Games Workshop and it's like the chance are you're not because you know within all those things I've just said you're now then narrowing all your opportunities down to one company you know like you might be a really big fan of Warhammer the chances of you actually getting to work on Warhammer uh, are close to zero in the same way that you know you might be really into playing for you know, Man City or whatever. So your chances of actually playing for Man City, starting as a, a an eight year old or whatever, are very slim. You know, you might want to be a footballer. That's at least you know, like broaden out at least that far. You know, and if you're good, and not to compare it like, in terms of quality, but just in terms of opportunities, like you know, you may end up in the Premiership. You may end up in. Um, so it's that thing. It's like be a writer. Don't be a writer of a particular thing. Be a games designer. I mean, games design again. I 
it's very hard. I don't really have much of an in because, you know, I, I was worked for Games Workshop for many years. But actually, my experience of working in game design in the wider industry is quite limited. I've had commissioned people tend to ask me to write stuff for them. I don't write stuff speculatively and try to get it published. You know, uh, <laughs> I've had a conversation quite a few times with uh, other designers, uh, which is like, well, we're very, you know, I very much like to design games, but I'm not really, I'm not sure I really want to run a games company. Um, but the problem is, the people who do run games company have plenty of ideas for games already. So, uh, you know, it's like actually be prepared to do some self-publishing, perhaps get some of those other skills. Again, I was very lucky the the training at Games Workshop because we worked across and with all the departments, with miniature designers, with artists, with project managers, with production, with editors, with, you know, I spent time on White Dwarf magazine doing layout and photography and things. So this gave me a very broad appreciation of how to make games and games articles and all that kind of stuff. Um, uh, which has proved invaluable, you know, later in life. Um, but actually picking up some of those skills, um, learning how to use a bit of, you know, Adobe Illustrator, how to lay something out for yourself, um, whatever that might be. Because um, then if you're enjoying doing it, you know, if you're creating a game or creating a book, and then actually you've given yourself, you know, there are more means to publish stuff now than there's ever been in terms of digital publishing and uh, and print on demand and, uh, you know, and, and accessibility, you know, more so than, you know, ever before. So if you equip yourself with the skills, you've got as much chance of getting something out as, as, as anyone did. If you fixate on, I want to do X for Y, that's my job. It's cool. You can work towards that and that can maybe be a thing. But actually, you know, it's the same as just saying, well, I want to write Batman. You go, very lucky if you do. You know, that's a that's a career goal, but that's not a career. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's the difference. It's like, um, it's get some experience of it, do it. And then maybe you get to pivot it into a career that people pay you for or you earn some money with. But actually trying to set out to do it is very hard. Just from the, from the get-go is earning money. No, <laughs> it's not going to happen. And finally, what are you working on right now? And is there anything else you'd like to share with the listener? The main thing is I have been uh, working with uh, former GW alumni Andy Chambers on a game called Zeogenesis which is for a company called Best Hobby, uh, which is about big uh, mech fighting suits, sort of very anime-influenced. We've taken that to a couple of shows now. We'll take that to Depticon and the the UK Games Expo. There'll probably be... It's all. It's going to be... The range is fully injection-moulded plastics that are going to be done in-house by Best Hobby, um, based on art from Dan Morrison, who's a concept artist. And we'll be looking to see more of that by the end of the year, really. Uh, there will be a Kickstarter mainly just to promote it towards the end of the year. It's not like it needs funding or anything like that, but actually, you know, these days, Kickstarter is a marketing tool as much as anything. Uh, that's been a lot of fun. You know, that's been about a year and a half of my life. And very recently, I was working on the script for the new Age of Sigma video game, um, Realms of Ruin, which, again, was, was a great project to work on. And it's nice to see everything come together. You know, you send words off, but actually seeing cinematics coming back and all the motion capture done and all the rest of it. Oh, yeah, those words have turned into things. Uh, so, there, so there's that. I've just delivered, I can't say what it's about, I've just delivered another novel, my first novel in a year, just over a year for Black Library. So that'll be out at some point over the next 18 months, I guess. 
yeah, that's it, really. That's that's the stuff I've mostly been working on that I can talk about. Uh, there's a couple of other projects which uh, are just kind of starting, uh, which I'll probably be sharing a bit more about in the months to come, but uh, not quite in a position to say yet. I have a Patreon if people want to subscribe to that, which is basically a pound, a dollar a month. Uh, and occasionally I remember to put something up there, which is just like Q&As, interviews, random bits of games that I'm working on, some short stories, all that kind of stuff. So people can always find out what I'm up to there as well. That's uh, Gavthorpe Create on Patreon. Massive thanks to Gav Thorpe there for giving up some of his time to speak to us on this humble podcast. Like I was saying at the start, there's there's a reason I'm kind of doing this Q&A format rather than what you might call like a regular conversation. And uh, well, the the main reason is I'm looking to I'm looking to compile almost a documentary style series, an audio documentary style series where I could ask these recurring. Uh, questions to folks like Gav and other other folks of that ilk if you like and then kind of compile the answers and theme them and group them together it's something that I'm quite uh, keen to work on over time and just put this together as a, a really nice resource for us to have and the, I guess the genesis of that idea was again wanting to wanting to speak to people like Gav but not wanting to recreate the conversations that he and his peers have sort of uh, no doubt had on numerous other podcasts and YouTube channels and stuff like that. I have listened to these conversations in the past talking about their careers and stuff like that, and I really do enjoy it. But I just wanted to try something different if I was if I was going to invite them onto this show and uh, kind of take a different approach so that we weren't covering the same ground again and again. So yeah, I'm I'm excited to see who I could track down next. I've got a couple of irons in the fire that I'm equally excited about. And the plan is to to keep sort of doing this. You know, I'll I'll be able to bring us the podcast episode pretty soon after the conversation. But I'll also be working on that kind of documentary style series, which I'll be able to put together further down the line, providing people are actually willing to come on the show and speak to me. So um, yeah, I'll, I'll keep sort of chipping away at that and try my best to get to get folks of note onto the show. That's no disrespect, by the way, to folks that have been on the show already. I consider everyone to be of note, you know, but um, particularly the, the Games Workshop folk of the 90s, you know, that I grew up, like I say, leafing through copies of White Dwarf and, um, you know, the, the, these people were like sort of rock stars to me. So it, it's a genuine privilege to to speak to somebody like Gav and I'm, I'm really hopeful that I could get some more of them on in future too. So, uh, yeah, that's about it for this episode of the Tabletop Miniature Hobby Podcast. If you're new to the podcast, please hit subscribe or follow on your listening app of choice and uh, you won't miss any future episodes. They'll be delivered to you automatically. Uh, I really appreciate your time. I really appreciate listening and I hope to speak to you again on the next one.